The problem is that the mineralization was situated in vertical uh, mountainsides. So they had hired six Swiss mountaineers and the idea was that they should uh, operate in teams of two, repelling the way down and on the way collecting samples. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear more from Bjorn Thomason, Emeritus Senior Scientist, about his first job working for the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, running a field program to study the niobium and tantalum-enriched Motsfeld intrusion in South Greenland. In uh, 1988, I was uh, working at the Blake as mine geologist and then the director of the Geological Survey of Greenland, Martin Kiesler, phoned me and offered me a job on short notice in South Greenland and I accepted. So, and there was some time in May, so uh, one and a half months later I was standing on this uh, glacier in the uh, Motsville intrusion some 25 kilometers uh, north of Nassauag airfield. And the story is this, that uh, for some time, I think five years, a uranium exploration program supported by the Danish uh, state and the European Commission, whatever they were called at that time, uh, they supported uh, uh, uranium exploration. So uh, the previous summers, uh, the teams had focused in on one of the Garda intrusions in South Greenland called the Motsfeld intrusion. And uh, they had uh, found a large diffuse uh, occurrence of minerals containing rare earths uh, and uranium and thorium uh, hosted in a mineral called uh, pyochlor. So the survey, the Logical Survey of Greenland, had got a grant of four and a half million, a lot of money in those days, to investigate. And the problem is that the outcropping pyochlor mineralization was situated in a vertical uh, mountainside. So what they had done until then was uh, geologists had uh, gone at the foot of the cliffs collecting loose blocks, boulders, coming up from uh, higher up and uh, identified the pyroclar and they also walked on the top of the cliffs. But uh, no normal geologists have been able to access the proper mineralization. So they had hired six Swiss mountaineers and the idea was that they should uh, operate in teams of two, uphilling down from the top of the cliffs, repelling the way down and on the way collecting samples from the mineralized zone, which was more or less in the middle of the cliffs. So we set out and at the same time we were going to fly a radiometric survey with helicopter in this alpine region. So in combination that would shoot the detailed sampling and mapping and radiometric uh, survey should give a much better understanding of the size and especially the grade of the mineralization. And to access the grade, you had to have samples, many samples. So we ended up with, with uh, 1,000 samples. And that's a lot and quite 
relatively large samples, at least one kilo, one to two kilos. A sample bag full was my instruction to the mountaineers. So we operated in that way that we flew out, the seven of us, six mountaineers and me, and they were all German-speaking, and it was my luck that I could speak German, and I had learned my German the previous years in Central East Greenland, where I worked as uh, only Dane among Austrian uh, mining engineers. So I had to adapt in those days. So for me, the German language is associated with fieldwork in Greenland, and I know a lot of, you know, special... Austrian dialect expressions for various things like uh, tent poles and, and things like that. And there's still a language uh, problem with, with the Swiss because uh, the mountaineers, they were handpicked, so they didn't know each other on beforehand. And that's not the best thing when you're putting up a team for fieldwork. It's much better that people know each other on beforehand because, you know, all sort of small frictions you can they should be taken away before you go into field, but uh, it worked out okay. But they spoke dialects. Every valley apparently in Switzerland has a dialect. And so when they spoke to me, they, I said, please, Hochdeutsch, uh, official German. But between themselves, they were joking and shouting in their, their funny dialects. They even couldn't understand each other, what people from the various valleys. So we operated in that way that we put up camp. I remember Spurs, the first cliff, there were two glaciers, and my friend Taps, who's worked there before, had christened them horror and terror, because those glaciers, they were so steep, and when the sun was shining in, they were melting, and by melting, they released rock samples, and they were coming fast down. So you shouldn't be in the middle of the day in front of those glaciers. Pretty dangerous. So we put our camp in between, and the camp consisted of caravans and two caravans, and then this old metal container called Solvorten. The sun wagon. Which had been used by other scientists uh, nearby. And uh, Solvorten, it was so heavy, it had to be lifted uh, inside by uh, Sikorsky 61, and they had to go in three tries to get it lifted. And the end, they threw everything out of the of the helicopter, you know, seats and, and all those things to reduce their weight. And then there had to be a slight wind to get a lift. And so they managed to put that container in Solvorn, but then it was very stable standing there. And then we have the two, uh, two uh, campers. So a good camp. And then the daily routine was that uh, in the morning, the helicopter came off on uh, Nasaswak and landed and took the teams on board to each time and put them on top of the cliff and uh, yeah and then they worked their way down i had uh, my job i had binocular magnificating 17 times so i in the morning i walked out in the middle of the glacier and was looking in at that cliff was it thousand meter 500 meter it was at least 500 meter between five there were different of course four different cliffs five different cliffs but the first one between terror and horror. It's pretty high. So I was standing there and they were rappelling down and then I had this uh, walkie-talkie and I could direct them because beforehand I had uh, photos taken the previous year of, of that uh, steep slope, Magnificite, and there I had a drawn inline, parallel line, and designed a sampling program and uh, it was line A B, C, D, and so on, uh, with a distance of 50 meters. So one 
Team of two going down in East Line, and there there were instructions to uh, collect sample at some places with a, a vertical distance of 25 meters, other at 50 meters. Um, and at each sample site, they were supposed to spray paint across two meter by two meter, and then fill up the sample bag, one to two kilos uh, of cheap samples, and they should take them for each quarter of the sample sites, hanging uh, in in the ropes, standing on a small shelf. So chip, 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 and and in the back, and you can imagine the back got heavier and heavier, going down. At one locality, uh, locality number three, they started from the foot and worked their way up, but uh, they were quite tough people. Also, they had from a start a lot of equipment, mainly rope, and also those uh, compound to uh, secure the line, hammer into the wall and secure the lines, and they also carried a scintillometer. A scintillometer is a handheld instrument used to measure gamma radiation, in this case, radiation emitted from the mineralized rocks. Also weighed a couple of kilos. Mm. So they had spray paint, uh, skin scintillometer, sample bags, chip sample hammer, and a mountaineering gear. So they had good heavy rucksacks, but they were strong and, and very fit. So I was standing there uh, with my binocular directing them, so I said, yeah, group number two, bitchen links. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Ah, bitchen right. Ah, and so on. And then they spray painted across, and I had my my enlarged photo, and and from that we later on produced a beautiful uh, digital map. And when we got the uh, analytical results, we could do uh, data handling and uh, plot in the analytical results and to contours everything on computers. That was the state of the art in those days. So we got very beautiful maps, but the way we did the sample was very primitive and old-fashioned, with me standing there and, and sketching in the sample points. So that worked out okay, and I'm very impressed by those uh, switch guys. And they said, I know nothing about mountaineering, I like to walk and, and uh, scramble in the mountains, but I never do climbing, real climbing. But those guys, they told me they hated uh, the thing because as a mountaineer, you will always look for fresh rocks where you can sh put in your compound and secure your lines and avoid rotten rock. But what we have here, because um, it's a cyanitic intrusion and uh, cyanide, that's a, that's a quartz poor granite in principle and it has been heavily hydrothermally altered that means uh, the minerals they have been uh, broken down by by hot solutions which at the same time have precipitated the minerals something like that we call it hydrothermal alteration and that's not stable rock that's rotten rock as they call it so they didn't like that and they also told me that the biggest danger by this appealing was actually when there are two, one is on top and the other further down the line. And they said it, they were so afraid that moving the line, they would loosen a rock which would fall at the head of, of uh, the companion further down. And they couldn't see each other because it was a vertical cliff. So I heard on the, on the intercom uh, walkie-talkie, they were asking all the time, Wobistu, Wobistu, where are you? So, I mean, you can imagine he was passing through uh, rotten rocks and he was afraid she was his friend just below or was it out to the side so things like that so it was a quite unusual project and also because we had a lot of money 
for that project, we could set up a field laboratory in uh, uh, Nasaswak. So the samples, they were flown in on a daily basis to the field lab in uh, Nasaswak airfields. And uh, we had also, we had bought a, a crusher and, and a mill so we could actually pulverize the, the samples and took out the splits, 50 or 100 grams. And that we sent to commercial laboratories in, uh, in Canada. All samples went to one laboratory and every tenth to another laboratory uh, for, as, as a chick. And so there were ships, the crushed and uh, the sample powder was sent directly from uh, NASA there in uh, end of August, also on a weekly base. So it all worked uh, smoothly. We had one accident. As I told you, on a daily basis, the mountaineers have flown up and put on top of the cliffs. And uh, sometimes it's involved quite difficult landings. I mean, the road was running when the two guys were jumping out. So the pilot, he wanted a counterweight, so to speak. So he used me. So I was sitting, you had the pilot and then the co-pilot seats. I was sitting, waiting the machine down because on the back seat, he had the two mountaineers. So he put one ski on, on, uh, on a slope, typically one ski on the slope. And then he can balance the machine and said, oh, well, come to the two passengers on the back seat, please uh, step out very carefully because he should keep the machine in a horizontal status because if it was tipping, the rotor would sit into the, the, the wall and that should be avoided at every cost. So I was sitting there. I did like it, <laughs> sitting, waiting down as a counterweight to, to help stabilize in that process. But, um, that was part of a job. But then one day I remember we had and we had visitors coming in and I was discussing with, with my friend John Peterson, another geologist, came visiting and they were flowing up without me uh, putting the mountaineers on location in the morning. It was a jet ranger. A jet ranger is not so powerful engine. So there wasn't so much leverage for, for the pilot. Uh, suddenly we heard the helicopter and then clang, clang. That was Rota who hit the mountaintide two times. And then he came back and we were so afraid. We said he would come down in flame with, with three bodies and boards. But he managed to land that helicopter and it appears that both rotor blades have been shorting <laughs> the same. And you know, rotor blades, they're, they're very stable. Uh, they, they should be absolutely balanced. But they're very much about balance. So apparently he caught the same amount of the end of each rotor blade. So he managed to land. I have a fantastic picture. They sent out the Sikorsky 61 to pick up the helicopter and it did that, uh, took it as in a sling load because uh, the, below the big uh, Sikorsky. So I have a fantastic photo of the two helicopters, one flying away with, with a sling load of a small helicopter. The project ended up and uh, we did a lot of plotting and we are analyzed for 12 elements. Uh, the main elements were niobium, tantalium, thorium, and uranium. Thorium, uranium, they were just a pain in the ass because they create problems, all sorts of environmental problems. But the P uh, metals, especially tantalum, uh, and also niobium. Uh, and, but they're hosted in the same mineral. So uh, 
to process that, you have to to separate out the, the pyrochlor. And uh, so, and and the other elements which could be of interest, tin and moly, tungsten, and so we analyzed for for twelve uh, elements, and I got the results, and and then in the autumn we. Uh, I did the final report, and it's a beautiful report with a lot of color plots. It was intended, you know, as it got uh, tip classes. When you do your contouring, you uh, make anomaly maps with the gradients, and you can see the most red part of the, the map is where the highest tantalum values are. That's that's common. And I remember we had a final meeting at the, with the bureaucrats in the mineral administration, and I said, well, uh, how many issues, uh, how large, uh, how many volumes should we print of that report? And uh, there were these uh, nice fold-out maps, color maps, uh, 25 or something. And uh, that would cost so and so much. And, and this uh, time in from the minister, he said, oh, that would be too expensive. You'll have to, to print those maps in black and white. And I processed this. I said, you can't distinguish when you're in 10 classes, there must be color. If not, they're useless. I said, well, that's, a, that's not our problem. That's a problem of survey. And if you want them in colors, you can pay for, for it yourself. So that report came out with, I think there were four, four uh, copies with uh, color uh, maps in. I have one here. And, and the rest, which went out to institutions and industries, were, were useless maps. Of course, there was a text and made up. I made up tables with with tonnage, estimated tonnage, and uh, you know, it's very difficult to estimate tonnage when you don't have. But but you have to come up with a guess. I think I said something uh, half a billion tons with uh, a few hundred ppm tantalum, and then the high grade zones, something like that, and then nothing happened. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Professor Alan Nutman about dating some of the oldest rocks in the world 